Well, as you open your Bible to John chapter 13, I will uh, encourage you anew. If you don't have a copy of the John Journal, which we purchased for you, uh, we want to make sure we get those in the hands. If you're a guest or if you're visiting with us, uh, we have a copy of a, it's just a real slimline book, but we're encouraging everybody in this season while we're studying John to get a hold of it. It's got the whole Gospel of John, and then on every opposite page, there's a journal page to just kind of record the things that God is saying, and want to invite the whole family into that. So if you don't have one, make sure you grab it. But if you do, get ready, because there's some... There's some great stuff in this text this morning. If you were with us last week, we talked about the fact that at the end of John 12, going into John 13, there's a bit of a transition. The end of John 12 is the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry. It's sort of the last time we see him in sort of a public discourse. And when we get into John chapter 13, the next five chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, are essentially private instruction. They're personal conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. We get a glimpse in these chapters of the tender, loving, intimate heart of God for his people. And not only here in this particular specific context, but as Jesus is showing his heart and his tenderness and his love for his disciples, by extension, each and every one of us have the ability to receive it just like that. To listen very closely and understand that when we see Jesus loving his disciples, what we're seeing is God's heart on display for us as well. You know, early this morning, 7 o'clock, we had to have all of our, uh, all of our children out in the parking lot across the street who were going to Hume Lake. And there's nothing both more sad and cute than like the parents that are sending their kids off to camp for the first time, right? All the seventh grade parents. And they're repeating and going over again and again all the things that you can tell they're terrified are going to happen with their, so they're like, make sure you use sunscreen and you have to use it a couple of times a day. And don't forget, make sure you change your underwear. And the kids are like, dad, what are you, you know, don't, I no, don't spend all your money on the first day. Don't just eat ice cream. And the kids are like, I get it, whatever. And while the kids are uncomfortable in it, what is on display over there is the tenderness and the heart of love and compassion of the parent for the kid. There is a concern for what this week ahead will involve. And what we see in the heart and the words of Jesus in John 13 and following is his concern for these people that he's nurtured and that he's loved. He recognizes that they are literally within a 24-hour period of the shepherd being struck and the sheep scattering. And so we see his heart of tenderness. We see his concern. We see him trying to guide and prepare them for what's ahead. And there is a little bit of uh, redundancy in here. There's a little bit of place where he's poking them a little bit in the same way that a, a parent of a seventh grader pokes their child before camp. But it comes from a place of compassion. It comes from a place of deep care. And I would want, as we look at it this morning, for each and every one of us to receive it that way as well. I think sometimes when we think about God, we think about God in sort of a distant way, or we think about him as being disconnected, or the things that are happening in the scripture were only true of him then. Let me tell you, the things that are true of the heart of God in the scripture revealed are the same things that are true about the heart of God for his disciples today. And we can receive them and be blessed by them. Is that, is that for me? What do we got over there? We got somebody, you got like a jolt cola or something I can have? I don't need it. I'm already talking fast. They're my friends. I can tease them. Thanks for the laugh. Okay. Uh, here's what we see. I, I want you to see three main things. And I'll also say this is sort of in the preamble here. It's a familiar text, right? And anytime we come to a familiar text, you probably, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you come to a passage like John 13 and the, the temptation is to go, yeah, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. I already know this story. I've already heard it. I've heard a million sermons about this or I've read the book or whatever. We have to come to it fresh. 
We have to come to it with fresh eyes. We have to look at it anew because sometimes in our, in our sort of uh, conclusion that we know what's here, we bring a bias and we miss what's actually in the text. So the first thing I want you to see, I've already kind of alluded to, the washing of the disciples' feet in John chapter 13 is a proof of Jesus' love. It's a proof of Jesus' love. In fact, it says here as we begin in, in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So again, we hear John repeating to us that Jesus is aware of the time. He knows that it's time, that the hour has come for him to head to the cross and to die for the sins of mankind. And that awareness of the hour, that awareness of the fact that he'll return to the Father, it prompts in him an affection, a compassion, a care, a concern for these people. It says he loved those of his who were in the world. And in in the ESV, it says he loved them to the end. That's That's a fine translation, and it could be interpreted there that he loved them all the way to the end of his earthly ministry. But the same word that's translated to the end there could be translated to the uttermost, or he loved them as completely as possible, that he loved them as fully as is is possible to love, right? That he loved them completely, that he loved them utterly. And the manifestation of his love comes in an interesting way because it doesn't necessarily in this text come through an articulation, a verbal articulation of that. It comes through service and through sacrifice. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them utterly to the fullest extent. It says in verse two, during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He, uh, right, that was wrapped around him into verse five. Jesus is demonstrating his love here and his love is broad. The, the writer here, John, includes for us the fact that Judas is sitting in the midst of that deal and that Judas was already aligned with satanic purposes. That Judas had already made the determination to betray Jesus. If we look at the other gospels, we see in the other gospels, timeline-wise, that Judas had already made preparations some six days before this to betray Jesus. And so what's interesting is we look at the love of Christ poured out in this basin of water, right? Poured out in the washing of these feet. I want you to understand that this this love isn't just for those that Jesus knows will reciprocate. It isn't just for those that Jesus knows will appreciate it. In fact, he's got 24 feet there. He's got 12 sets of feet. And when I think about this, when I think about service and sacrifice, even in my own life, the times when I've served and sacrificed, a lot of times... I kind of feel like what I would likely have done in this case is probably, you know, I get down and I wash Andrew's feet and I, and I wash Peter's feet and I wash John's feet and I get to Judas and I go, yeah, I'm gonna skip you. I think we both know why, you know, and then I go to the next guy, right? <laughs> Jesus was aware of the fact that Judas would betray him. I don't want you to miss this morning that he washes the feet of Judas so that Judas can walk away. That Judas's feet are cleaned in preparation for his betrayal. There's something vast about the love of Jesus that loves Judas even though reconciliation does not happen. Judas doesn't go, wow, that was an incredible thing you did for me. I've decided not to betray you. No, Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas. Judas was already aligned with satanic purpose to betray Christ and that does not preclude Christ from serving him. I want to stop and think about that as a disciple this morning, right? 
As a follower of Jesus, I want to think about the places in my life where I serve and sacrifice, but only to those that I decide deserve it, or only to those that I think have earned it, or only to those that I think will reciprocate. I want you to know in this text, Jesus' feet never get washed, according to what John tells us. I sort of imagine that if I was in this situation, there's the awkwardness of it at first, right? When Jesus takes off his outer garment and he pours the water into the, to the bowl, he wraps the towel around himself, he starts to wash feet, there's the awkwardness at first. But I think there's a point for most of us where we would have been like, once he's done, we would have been like, well, you know, how about if I do this for you now? Would you like that, Jesus? How about if, I mean, I mean your feet are still dirty. Maybe we should... Uh, Nobody, right? There's nobody in this text that's recorded as ever. I think Jesus finishes the dinner with dirty feet. It's not reciprocated. A guy like Judas isn't going to appreciate it. It also happens in the midst of their supper. That during supper note is important. Because this foot washing should have taken place the moment they walked in the house. During this time period, people traveled on dirty roads and they would come into a home and it was customary for there to be a basin of water and the servant of the house or the slave of the house would wash the people's feet. If there was no servant or slave, then it was for the lowliest of the people in attendance to do the foot washing. Interestingly, in Luke chapter 22, verse 24, Luke tells us that the disciples had been embroiled in a controversy about which of them was the greatest. And so it's not surprising in this context that maybe as they entered the house with dirty, dusty feet, the grime of the road on them, that the first one sort of looked at the basin and thought, well, we've just been talking about who's going to be greatest, and I'm not going to wash their feet. They can wash my feet, and sat down at the table. It says the meal had actually already begun. The meal had begun, and they still didn't have their feet washed. It's indicative of the fact that something had been forgotten, something had been neglected, something had been ignored that Jesus makes right. It reminds me of a time when my... uh, when my son Jack was really little, and I said, Jack, do you want to pray and thank God for the food? And he goes, well, let's taste it first, right? <laughs> I, I get what he's talking about, you know. Before, before I tell God I'm thankful for this, maybe I should give it a try, right? And sometimes we delay because of inner things that are stirring inside of us, but those inner things are not good. It's interesting that this happens during the supper. Jesus gets up, and he proves his love says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While Judas had this wicked intent, while he had this satanic purpose, Jesus serves him. The washing of the feet is not just an indication of the fact that we should also wash people's feet. It's actually a a picture in, in microcosm of the entire incarnation of Christ. It says in the text that he gets up from supper, he gets up from that comfortable place, and he takes off his outer garment. He wraps the towel around himself. He pours the water into the basin, and he washes their feet. To me, that looks exactly like the creator of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was in perfect harmony with the Trinity, who was perfectly comfortable in all of eternity, taking off the outer garment of his deity, right? Philippians chapter 2, this is an encapsulation of Philippians 2 where it says, though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be clung to, but he made himself nothing. He takes off his outer garment, Philippians 2 says, and he made himself nothing. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here in John chapter 13, we see him take off his outer garment, put on the equipment of a servant. Instead of pouring water into a bowl at the cross, we see him pour out his very blood for the cleansing of mankind. He serves us through his death 
and through his resurrection. Jesus here is painting a picture of something much greater, and we're gonna talk about that in a second, but he does it as a, as a proof of love. Let me ask you, what, what does your service look like? And what does your service prove? What does your sacrifice prove? I think there are times in our lives where we make sacrifices, but this is a key component for us as a community. In our mission statement, it says, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we want to be a body of people who are united in sacrifice, a loving community, glorifying God, living like Christ. Unity and sacrifice is something we're all called to. What does that sacrifice look like? Because our life has the opportunity to prove our love. I remember um, when my son Hank was really little. This is kind of a gross story, by the way. When my son Hank was really little, he was, uh, he was being potty trained, and he was kind of at that stage where if he told you he needed to go to the bathroom, he didn't mean like, it'd be cool if we could find a restroom in the next 30 minutes. When Hank said, I gotta go to the bathroom, you had like 60 seconds on the clock. You know what I'm talking about? And so we're in the Fresno airport, of all places. We're getting ready to fly to visit some family. We're in the Fresno airport, and my son Hank, just a little guy, he goes, Dad, I gotta go potty. And I'm, I, I just like dropped whatever I was doing, right? I scooped that kid up. I'm running through the, bat, through the airport, trying to find the restrooms. I find the, air, the restrooms in the Fresno airport. I run in there. I set my kid down. I open the stall. And then Hank has a blowout. I don't wanna gross you out, but it was, it was gross, right? It was a, there was a massive problem for everybody, right? And uh, I remember at that point thinking, you know what? I'm just gonna throw this kid away, right? I'm just gonna... <laughs> There's like one of those big trash cans and I thought, I'm young, I can have more kids and this kid can be just like a fixer-upper kid for some other family. I just put him in the dumpster and then if somebody wants to clean up this mess, they can have him for free. Uh, And all this is going through my head and then I look down at my boy and he's crying, he's embarrassed, you know? And then as I remember the story, I I think back and the next memory I have is me standing at the bank of sinks in the Fresno airport bathroom washing these tiny little underpants, right? And I remember looking at my reflection and thinking, like, when did this become my life? You know, like, when did I, when did I become the guy who does this thing? It was gross, right? It was so gross. And I'll tell you, there wasn't a moment that day where Hank thanked me for that, right? There weren't a bunch of other parents standing around going, you, sir, are an outstanding father. We're calling Oprah, you know? <laughs> like, there's not going to be a day in the future where Hank's going to call me up and be like, Dad, you remember that day in the Fresno Airport bathroom? I've been so inspired by that, I've decided to become a missionary, you know, and I'll be like, hallelujah, you know, like, no, right? He doesn't even remember that story. Why did I do that gross thing? Why did I do that gross thing? I didn't do it for the payoff. I didn't do it for what I got out of it. I didn't do it so that other people would be impressed. I did that thing because of my love for that kid. You see, love motivates us to do things we wouldn't do in any other circumstance, Love motivates us to do things that we wouldn't do for a payoff. And so when we look at our own lives and we recognize a lack of sacrifice and we recognize a lack of service, a lack of humility, what we have to look at is our love. Jesus puts on the towel. He fills up the basin in full knowledge of who he is. I love the verse here in verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and did these things. It wasn't that he momentarily lost himself or that that he thought, you know, well, you know, I'm just like these other guys. I'm going to do this thing for them because they all have dirty feet. No, Jesus was fully aware of his power, that all authority had been given to him. 
And he was fully aware of his origin, where he came from, and fully aware of his destination, where he was going to. And what the text says, actually, is that in full awareness of his power and authority, of his origin and his destination, in full awareness of those things, he was prompted to serve. I think sometimes when we start to think about the power we have as disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit, or in Matthew 28 where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything which I've commanded you, and lo, I will be with you always, we start thinking, hey, he's got all the power and he's with me always, I'm kind of a big deal. I'm unstoppable. We think about our power. Or we think about our origin, where we've come from, or our destination, that we've been redeemed, that we've been reconciled, that we will spend eternity with Jesus because of his saving grace. And what it provokes in us is not humble sacrifice and service, but when we think about our power, when we think about our origin and our destination, what is provoked is arrogance and condescension and conceit. Not in Christ. In Christ... He understands his authority. He understands where he's come from and where he's going to. He gets the timing, and he loves them to the uttermost. He loves them absolutely. His awareness of who he is and where he comes from and where he's going prompts in him the removal of his outer garment and the sacrificial humility. He serves them. The first thing I'd want you to see in this text is that the washing of the disciples' feet is a proof of his love. Not only is it a proof of his love, but it's a pattern for disciples, a pattern for them specifically, and then by extension, a pattern for all of us. If you jump down further in the text, look at what it says in verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He says, do you understand what just went down? I just washed all your feet. Do you get what that was? I was setting a pattern for you. Setting a pattern for disciples. I love the fact in this text that Jesus claims that title. Teacher and Lord. He says, you're right. You call me teacher and Lord, and that's exactly where I'm supposed to be. That's exactly who I am. But if you call me teacher and Lord, then you have to replicate my life. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship at its core is the abandoning of one's own plans and life and agendas and philosophy and adopting the plans and life and agenda and strategy and philosophy of someone else. The teacher and Lord. It's striking to me in this text that within two sentences, at one point, Peter looks at Jesus and calls him Lord, and then one sentence later says, you'll never wash my feet. Let me tell you, you can't call him Lord and tell him no at the same time. Those two things are incompatible. Lord and never don't fit together. And Peter tries to make it work, and it doesn't work. I think there are many of us in our own lives who if I said, is Jesus your Lord? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust in the Bible? Are you counting on him for resurrection life? You'd go, yeah. And I say, well, how often are you saying never to him? And you go, well, relatively frequently. Don't call him Lord. Pick one or the other. Jesus himself will say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? He says, in this particular text, I'm not just telling you these things so you'll know them. I'm not just telling you these things so that you'll have them in your head and you'll know something about me. Oh, well, I know Jesus 
In light of his authority and his origin and his destination, I know Jesus was a servant. I know Jesus was sacrificial. I know he took off his garments and put on the towel, right? It's not simply that you would know something about him. He says in 17, blessed are you if you do them. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 says, he died for all, that those who live might, not, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. A disciple replicates the thinking and speech and action of his master, and let me tell you, to refuse, to refuse to serve, to refuse to take on the towel and the basin, to refuse to humble yourself is to claim superiority over Christ. To say, well, that works for him, but it doesn't work for you. You don't know who I am. I'm, like, I'm a CEO, right? Or you don't know about the things I've been through. I'm kind of a big deal, right? To not live the life that he set as a pattern for us is to claim superiority over him. He says, if you call me teacher and Lord, then you have to wash others' feet as well. You have to follow this example. It's why it's vital for us in our mission statement. It's why we're constantly talking about service and sacrifice because we are called to live the same life. He's setting a pattern for us. And I wanna be clear here too that, that when he calls us to follow the pattern, he's not saying do what I have done, right? The pattern here is not, hey, you should also wash people's feet. He's not establishing an ordinance. I think sometimes we go, okay, well, I get it. Like, there are people, you know, around, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna fill up a bowl with water and I'm gonna wash their feet periodically, right? We're not gonna have a service here on Sunday morning where we have a bunch of bowls of water and you come and wash people's feet because Jesus isn't saying do what I did. He's saying do as I did. He's saying do as I did. He's not, he's not establishing a new ordinance like baptism or communion. He's saying I've set you an example of what to do in your culture. So what do we do? We look at what's undone. We look at what's neglected. We look at what's been dirty, what's been forsaken, what we consider to be beneath us. We look for what's dirty and undone and beneath me and difficult and neglected and we, and we find a way to serve in those aspects. That is washing the feet of other people. And I think it's worth asking the question this morning, who's your Judas? Who's your Judas, right? Who is the one that you would skip in the foot washing? Who is the one that you would say, well, I would give you some help, but I'm afraid of what you do with it. I would give you a couple of bucks, but I'm afraid of what you do with it. I would serve you, but I'm afraid that you don't deserve it. I'm afraid you won't appreciate it. I'm afraid you won't give it back to me, right? Jesus washes Judas's feet so that Judas is prepared to betray him, to walk away. And yet so often in our life, we skip our Judases, don't we? We skip the ones who have wronged us, the ones that we know probably won't appreciate our grace, won't appreciate our service and sacrifice. Jesus says, I've set you a pattern that you would follow after me, that you would live this same life as I have done, not what I have done. Jesus is demonstrating revolutionary kindness, revolutionary kindness in, in this sort of humble solidarity with mankind. Revolutionary kindness and humble solidarity. You know, when I, when I took on this role a couple of years ago, we had a, a classic organizational chart. And what I mean by that is that if you looked at our org chart as a, as, a, as a church, it was like, you know, the congregation and then the elders and then me and then the senior associate pastor and then the lead pastors and there's like all these people, right? And it, and it was just basically like, you, you sort of think about what you do in, in this church based on who you boss and who you report to, Right? 
who are you bossing and who you report to? And I came in and I said, I just don't see that org chart in, in the scriptures at all. I don't see Jesus organizing his disciples that way. In fact, when Jesus organizes his disciples, he takes off his outer garment and he wraps a towel around himself and he washes their feet. And so about a year ago, we threw away the old ladder org chart top-down org chart, and we redid it. I'm going to show you a picture of it really quick. Uh, don't be hypnotized by this. We call this, um, we call this the Evie Free Fullerton Concentric Spheres of Service. Notice first that the black arrows that point towards the center, the black arrows are serving and sacrifice. That's the thing that, that compels us. That's the thing that pushes us. The outermost ring, the yellow ring, is Jesus. He serves us first. He's the first mover, Right? We are moved by the service of Christ, and because of the service of Christ, then there is this inward movement of service that, that continues in. The elders are serving. Everybody else within that circle. The leaders are serving. Everybody else within that circle. Inside the, that quadrant there, you can see Heritage Ministries and Frontier. You can't read it because it's too small from where you're at. Heritage and Frontier and Response and Anchor. And all of these ministries in our church are doing what? Are they bossing each other? No. They're serving. And they're serving who? The congregation. That's you. And with what purpose and what goal? The goal is that the congregation then would do what? Inwardly serve outward the public. It says there in the gray circle there close to the center, the world. That we're all serving with the goal then what? At the end, a yellow again in the bullseye serving Jesus. That the world would serve Jesus. That we would serve Jesus. That our staff would serve Jesus. All of us served by Christ for the sake of serving Christ. I don't want to leave that up there too long because I don't want you to get confused. If you want a copy of that, you can ask me. I'll send it to you. But the idea is to come in and say, no, we're not going to think of ourselves in terms of who we boss and who bosses us. We're going to think about ourselves in terms of who has God empowered us to serve and sacrifice for. That's the model Jesus sets. A proof of his love, a pattern for disciples, and third and last, I want you to see in the text, a preview of salvation. A preview of salvation. If you back up, back to John chapter 13, there's a little bit of contention. Typical of Peter, it says in verse, seven, or in verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And that isn't so much of a question, it's more of, a, of an emphatic like, you're not washing me, right? You're not washing me. Jesus says in verse 7, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you'll get it. I get that this is weird, right? It's hard. It's hard to receive service and sacrifice, isn't it? It's uncomfortable in those times where people sacrificially serve you and you go, Man, I, don't, I don't need the help. I don't want the help. Just, I'll just, I'm fine. Jesus starts to wash their feet and Peter's like, this feels weird. You're the master. You're the Lord and the teacher. I, I don't think this makes sense. Like, what's going on here? And Jesus says, well, you don't get it now, but you will get it, right? You will get it. Peter says in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. There it is. He's already said Lord, and now he says never. You'll never wash my feet. We're not doing this, right? It's wrong. It's wrong for the Messiah to wash the feet of the disciples, Peter says. So Jesus responding to sort of the, uh, the pendulum that is Peter's responses, Jesus says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. At that point, Jesus is pointing out the fact that this isn't just something happening in the, in the temporal moment. For him to say, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me, that seems a little extreme, right? When, if it's just about feet. It's not just about having his feet washed. Jesus is saying, if I don't cleanse you, and he's pointing at the greater cleansing of the shedding of his blood, the cleansing of, of our sin, the removal of the stain of death, resurrection life that's extended to people. He says, Peter, sooner or later, you're gonna have to be cleansed by me, right? If I don't clean you, you have no share with me if I don't wash you. 
So the pendulum of Peter's emotions and kind of who he is, he swings all the way to the other side and he goes, okay, great then. Don't just wash my feet, wash my head and my hands too, right? I'm ready for a bath, right? Let's go out back and just do this thing, right? And so, so then Jesus, you kind of imagine at this point, Jesus is probably thinking like, Peter, just, buddy, just sit down, right? Just, can I just do this? I'm trying to paint a picture here. I'm trying to show you something. Shh, you know, can we talk about this later? Peter says, well, wash all of me. And Jesus goes, no, you don't, you don't get it. If you've had a bath, all you need is to have your feet washed, right? There is a, there's an ongoing washing that needs to take place from the, the grime of the road, the grime of life that needs to be washed off. But if you've had the cleansing that I offer, that doesn't have to be done again and again and again and again. There is a cleansing coming, Jesus is pointing to it, where he will die on the cross. Within 24 hours, Jesus will die for their sins. This incredible cleansing. And he says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter says, well, then let's do a whole bath. And he goes, it's not the cleansing you need. You don't need a bath for me. What you need is this greater sacrifice. And the reality is, most of you in the circle here believe already. He says, you're clean except for one of you. What's he mean by that? Well, prior to the death and resurrection of Christ, they can't have put their faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. But what they have done is put their faith in the redemptive work of the Messiah. And so he looks at them and he says, you don't don't all need a bath because you are clean. Your belief is in the right place, but there's one of you that is not clean because he recognized already, he recognized already that Judas's heart was aligned with satanic purpose. Jesus says, there's an atoning once and for all work, but there will be progressive confession and daily recognition, repentance from the grime of life that's still necessary. I think sometimes we sort of glory in the fact that because Jesus died for us, our sins are paid for, and and we just sort of walk away. But what Jesus is saying here is, no, there is sort of an ongoing repentance, an ongoing confession. 1 John 1, 9 is not written to, to people who don't know Jesus. It's written to us, the church, and it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is a call for us daily to be confessing the grime of our wicked lives, Until we are glorified, until we are perfected, we continue to live a life that sort of lives in this tension between being redeemed by Jesus and glorified by Jesus. And in that brokenness, we're going to have moments where we walk through the mud. So Jesus is saying here, you don't need a bath again and again. You just need your feet to be clean. There's there's a progressive confession. There's a progressive ongoing cleansing that's necessary. Most of you here in this circle believe, he says, but there's one of you that doesn't. Again, reemphasizing the fact that Jesus knows already who it is that he's serving here. In light of his love and in response to his redemption, knowing our power and our origin and our destination and our timing, I wonder, will you take up his towel? I think it's really interesting that it says at the beginning of this that God had put all things into Jesus' hands. Like that's the way he describes Jesus' authority that God had put all things into Jesus' hands. He had access to everything. And what he chooses to pick up is a towel to clean these people's feet. He has access to all power and all authority. And what he chooses to literally put into his hand is a towel. I wonder in light of what you know, in light of where you've come from, in light of where you're going by the grace of God, I wonder if you're willing to pick up the towel and serve I wonder if you're willing to sacrifice, if you're willing to wash the feet. And again, we're not talking about a new ceremonial washing. We're talking about contextualizing the needs, the hurt, the pain, the suffering, the things that are undone and neglected. 
Can you and will you, in light of who Jesus is and what he's done, will you pick up the same towel? Will you take off your outer garment? And when you wrap that towel around yourself and wash the feet, figuratively, of the world in which you live. Because when you do that, you have the opportunity to do exactly what Jesus is doing in this text. What's he doing in this text? He's previewing salvation. The reality is that when you and I put on the towel, when we fill up the basin with water and we begin to serve and sacrifice the people at the grocery store and the gas station, when we begin to serve our family members, when we begin to serve our neighbors, when we begin to serve the body in this place, when we take up the basin and the towel, we have the opportunity to paint a picture of the salvation of Christ to preview it for the world. It's a revolutionary thing. You want to live a radical life? Sacrifice yourself. Serve like Jesus did. It's radical. It's revolutionary. Will you take up the towel? Will you serve him? Will you go to your Judas and lay down your life knowing that he may not reconcile, knowing that he may not reciprocate? Jesus wanted us to have that blessing. Remember at the very beginning we talked about the fact that this, this is the compassionate, intimate teaching of, of, a, of a leader to his flock, a shepherd. And he says in 17, it's one thing to know these things, but blessed are you if you do them. We don't want to leave this place today, church, going, oh, I learned some new things about Jesus. Or even I learned some new things about what Jesus wants me to do. What we want to do is do those things. We want to be those people and watch our city and watch our state, watch our neighborhoods and our families and this world transformed when we live a life that reveals Christ, that reveals Christ in his revolutionary kindness, in his humble solidarity with the suffering of man. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a passion to do that we would look at the proof of your love and the pattern for disciples, that we would see this preview of salvation and we would recognize that you have given us the blessing, the privilege, the honor of previewing that salvation as well. That sometimes the way in which we articulate the gospel to those we know is not through a four spiritual laws tract or through a, a gospel message, but through a life that is a gospel message, a life of service and sacrifice that points to our good shepherd. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.